All right, welcome back to Sloydcast. I am Mark Angelini, and I'm joined by my co-host Mike Hanna. 60K. Sipping the water, aka 60K Sloyd. And today we are very happy to welcome Barn the Spoon to our podcast. And um, let's see. Yes, hello, everyone. <laughs> Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. We were really excited to get you on because you were one of the first people when we first wrote out like a brainstorm list of all the people we wanted to interview. You were definitely in the top five people. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. Only in the top you. five. <laughs> <laughs> Who came above me? Did you did you list them in order? No, no. <laughs> not they were they're they're definitely not, weren't graded we, <laughs> in order. We can't discuss those details with you. <laughs> um, but you were definitely in terms of my journey, Barn. Um, your videos and just your teaching that you were doing way back in way back, I say, um, 2011, 2012. That was some of the first stuff I came across that really helped me get a better understanding of spoon carving and a lot of the videos you made on your techniques um, early on where you're like in a driveway, I think it was. I mean, those were some of the, when I found those, it was kind of the first video instruction I actually had where I could see how someone was using an ax and using their knives and I could, uh, you know, imitate that and try to make it my own. So definitely you've been instrumental in my learning journey and I know you've been instrumental now to many people's learning journey. Um, but before I get ahead of myself, can you tell us where you live and give us a sense of what your life is like? Um, I know you make a living doing this, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about that and just kind of what you know what your life is like, kind of in general. <laughs> okay, great. Um, so, well, so where do I live? So, I mean, I used to live in London, and okay. um, you guys have probably heard of London, but now I live oh, yeah. in a place called Coldford which you okay. probably haven't heard of. Uh -uh. Um, so I don't know whether you've heard about the um, pandemic, yeah. uh, <laughs> but just at the, basically at the start of that, uh, I moved house. So it was quite an intense time to move house. Um, and we bought a little house um, just on the edge of a cute little town in the countryside. Um, right next to Wales, which is a country okay. on the side of England. Right. Um, yeah. And we're kind of sandwiched in what's called the Forest of Dean, um, which is a big kind of, well, some of it's kind of ancient forest and some of it's um, managed. And yeah, there's there's a lot of woodland going on for, for the UK anyway. Uh, right. And then we're kind of in between a couple of really big rivers as well, which is nice. So, hmm. yeah, I mean, it's been a big change for me. And um, I, bet. I never planned never planned to be in London um, for as long as I was. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that I mean, that, that's pr probably um, I mean, I, I've, I guess people might have figured out from my Instagram because I keep on posting photos of a river that isn't the River Thames. <laughs> um, but I haven't really kind of said much about it because um, sure. it's you know there's a lot of big changes going around for everyone right so absolutely yeah. so did you close the London shop or so is did, that still going well th so that's a good question 
So the shop <laughs> is currently closed, and um, I am trying to reopen it at the moment. Um, like a lot of small businesses, we've definitely suffered um, in you know in the last six months. Um, mm-hmm. So the the money that used to be kind of more freely available to to make things happen is not not as freely available i guess um yeah so yeah we're kind of making plans i think we're going to open for like three days a week mm-hmm. um hopefully soon until christmas but things are kind of kicking off again over here um yeah so i don't know don't know quite how things will be but yeah the, the kind of plan is to try and keep um i've got this um I guess I set up this thing called the Greenwood Guild, which is a bunch of classes. Um, yep. So we're trying to keep that going. Um, and we're trying to keep the shop going. Uh, but we've been, yeah, we've been in hibernation. We're kind of coming out of hibernation the last few weeks, really. Um, so, yeah. Hmm. So where you live now, is it far? It's, kind of, it's on the opposite side of the country, right, from London? Yes. It is, yeah. So it's about three hours drive. Wow. Which, you know, the UK is quite a small place, really. So that might sure. not sound very far to you guys. But, um, yeah, that, that yeah. Us, it's... <laughs> yeah. It's like driving to DC from here where we live. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not working in London. That's, that's the plan. Um, so I'm just kind of hanging out here in the countryside, which is really nice. And um, we've got a couple or few wonderful people that we work with in London that are over there kind of making things happen, basically. So um, there's a guy called uh, Tom Hepworth, who we kind of have worked with for the last few years doing all sorts of things. He kind of teaches some of our forging classes and he actually does our... um, filming that we do uh well the oh, editing okay. at least anyway nice. and then we've got a guy called tim sanderson who is kind of in charge he's been left in charge wow <laughs> poor tim poor tim <laughs> um so yeah he kind of manages i guess the greenwood guild and the shop um, okay lovely so yeah so you've got quite the quite the structure with the uh greenwood guild and all the educational stuff, it sounds like. Yeah, totally. Well, so we use, at the Greenwood Guild, it's kind of used as a workshop space um, for most of the week. And we teach some kids um, on a Friday. And then we have Spoon Club um, at the Greenwood Guild, uh, kind of Monday to Thursday nights. Um, and then on the weekends we have classes. So I'll, I'll go up and teach one weekend a month. Um, and then we tend to have like a knife forging class or a bowl carving class. Um, yeah, that kind of thing. Okay. Nice. That's awesome. I mean, I see a lot of that stuff through your Instagram feed and I think I've, I've also followed the Greenwood Guild as well. Um, so before we go into all that even more detail, um, how did you get into all this stuff? Because I know you've got a pretty interesting story and in how you ended up, you know, where you are now, um, which I think is really interesting and people would like to hear about. Um, 
I know a little bit. I've I've heard or read a couple of things about some of your early, like maybe uh, I remember you mentioning something about when you were younger, you got into turning. And then I remember watching some videos where you kind of talked about how you got into spoon carving and working as a traveling spoon carver for a certain amount of time. So can you tell us about that whole journey? Well, do you, do you want to know my first interaction with a knife? Not, That'd be I awesome. don't think many yeah. people know about this. Yeah, let's, yeah. let's hear okay. it. <laughs> it's Sloyd a little Kess. bit gruesome. <laughs> it's gruesome. Yeah. So I, w- I was born cesarean, and the, the surgeon actually cut my face. What? So that was my first experience wow. of a knife, wow. was um, before I was even born, being stabbed in the face. Oh my uh, goodness. So wow. I think. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think uh, I've just been trying to make my peace with knives ever since. <laughs> <laughs> wow, a whole so, new twist. Uh, yeah, I mean, that is true, but I probably shouldn't have bothered telling you that. I guess <laughs> I was, um, what, what kind of happened is that my, so my, you guys call it wood shop over there, don't you? Is that what you call yeah. it? Shop. Shop yeah. class. Yeah. Shop class, wood shop. Yeah. So my, um, shop teacher was, uh, my next door neighbor and, um, he was really into kind of, I don't know, he was quite kind of free and, um, sculptural. He was really into turning and yeah, so that's, that's kind of how I got into woodwork. Mm-hmm. And um, okay. I was very fortunate. My parents um, bought me a little electric lathe when I was mm-hmm. 13 mm-hmm. and I used to spend my time in the garage. Is that what you guys call it? A garage? Yeah. Like a thing that you put a car in. Yeah. Gar- yeah, yeah, yeah. Garage. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, we say garage, but yeah. <laughs> Garage, do you? Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Only really posh people say garage over here. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. I like actually you know you know, some of our neighbors would probably say something closer to garage. Yeah. But it'd yeah. be in like a real uh those are the people that speak in a dialect, a southern dialect that's yeah, you know, almost like a patois type thing. Brilliant. <laughs> I love the American accents. Yeah. Um, well, so yeah, so basically, um, that's, that's how I got into woodwork. He was really cool. And my parents were, um, supportive and this was before the internet. Mm-hmm. So yep. I, um, I had a magazine subscription to wood turning monthly nice. um, as a teenager. And I used to save my pocket money and buy, um, like bowl gouges and things like that. Uh, <laughs> nice. yeah. And how, for a new so you were, you were like what 13 14 yeah so I, I mean i was i guess i was 12 when i got really into it and then i think i got a lathe for my 13th birthday yeah so wow. i kind of got into it at school with this teacher and then um yeah i got one for my birthday it was amazing and That's awesome. uh, i mean the setup it's it, we're, we're quite different in the uk because not everyone has got like woodworking tools in their garage mm-hmm. yeah um i think you guys tend to have like bigger garages and like it's pretty normal for, for people sure. to have like table saws and that's pretty unusual over here like i mean yeah. it's not it's not crazy rare but like most people don't have garages with woodworking tools in like right it's yeah, yeah. pretty unusual so and i just had like i had a little um do you guys have black and decker over there oh yeah probably not we black do and decker. we do have black and decker. yeah yeah, so I had like a Black & Decker workmate. That was my first workbench, little work workmate. 
Yeah. And um, I had a Black & Decker drill right. and nice. <laughs> a lathe. And yeah, I um, I had a hot I had a hot air gun for some reason. It was pro- I don't know maybe it was my mum's, <laughs> but I used to burn bits of wood and make sculptures, <laughs> and I was quite experimental. I'd make quite a lot of toadstools. Oh yeah, huh. uh, that's not go going to too, too too much detail about that. And um, <laughs> and then bowls and candlesticks and okay, yeah. so just mostly just turning anything obsessed. you could think of. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess it was mostly bowls. Um, I don't think my candlesticks were particularly successful, really. <laughs> uh, just because, I guess, because I, I didn't really think about joining the bits together. So it's like quite wasteful. If you want a really sturdy base, mm. it's quite wasteful to turn a massive chunk of wood down. Mm. Yeah. And in those days, I didn't understand Greenwood at all. So I was buying all my blanks. I was buying blanks oh, from oh, wow. this catalog. And I would get like really like things that I'd be really ashamed of now, like really exotic woods that would be, you know, probably <laughs> from Africa. And um, yeah. So, but, so I used to turn some bits of Greenwood and I would just really enjoy the shavings just flying down and hitting the ground. But then I'd know that it would split. And um, right. It, it's so funny because now you meet kind of woodworkers that are like, oh, why won't it just split? And I'm like, no, of course it won't, you idiot. Well, I don't say that, but that's what I'm thinking in my head. It's like, of course it won't split. <laughs> but actually, when you don't understand the woods, then it really does split, doesn't it? Right. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Sure. I get that question all yeah. the time. That's funny. So, yeah, there we go. So from, from the catalog. <laughs> So from the woods of the catalog, what was it that all of a sudden you wanted to carve spoons? Which I feel like is what you're really well known for across <clears> the world. Um, what was that? What What was the jump from from the the garage to the the peddler on the street? <laughs> well, so my next door neighbor, this wonderful man who sadly has now passed away, um, he was going to retire to um, France, live in this really beautiful old cottage that they have like made out of like cob bricks. Do you know what a cob mm. brick is? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So like really old school. So he had like, he bought this place and it was, it was you know, it's probably like 15th century or something, you know. Wow. All falling apart. And um, he was kind of doing it up and he wanted to retire and make window chairs. Mm. Um, so, and so I actually ended up working for him as like a, we call them a TA, which is just a teacher's assistant. So I was just like a kind of technician or whatever in his wood shop. And he had bought, um, Mike Abbott's book, uh, Green Woodwork. Okay. Um, you, do you know about that book? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't own it. Um, but I'm familiar with it and when we talked to maddie whitaker that was like his that was his bible right yeah there you go well mike Abbott is a an extraordinary man uh really wonderful and um yeah i guess pretty much everyone that got into greenwood work 30 years ago or 25 years ago got into it because of his book mm. before mm-hmm. the internet that that's how people in the uk 
learned about it really right um so yeah so this guy had his book and and so when i was working for him we we made these kind of pole lathes and shaving horses and i totally was kind of like oh isn't this quaint in the olden days <laughs> and um then i think the real realization actually for me was a shaving horse mm. um uh-huh. It was just like, wow, like this, this freedom is incredible. Um, <laughs> and actually, I think with the pole lathe, the pole lathe requires a little bit more skill or knowledge, I think, to make it work really well. Right. Um, so I wasn't quite as sold on the pole lathe. I was like, oh, it's quaint and, and fun, but um, I'll stick with the electric. <laughs> but it, it wasn't until I actually met Mike Abbott many years later um, and saw what they're like when they're using it properly and use properly sharpened tools because, you know, I was just using tools sharpened on a bench grinder, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, so it, they they were very different different tools as well. And um, so, yeah, that's so and, and in that book, there was a wooden spoon. And so actually I taught um some year three kids who are like aged eight to make spoons before i'd even made a spoon myself um, <laughs> and i was working as as a teacher's assistant and they were they were just made on a fret saw mm. um we yeah. had this whole stack of fret saws and we made them out of pine they they painted them with food huh. coloring they made a pair of salad <laughs> servers and they were completely insane um <laughs> So that That's that was funny. the first spoon, and then and then I, I I actually tried to make one from Mike's book. So t- it was one that was kind of turned on a pole lathe and um, split in half. Uh, and actually, I made a jig on a bandsaw to clamp it to a workbench, and I used a, a big old gouge, um, you know, one of those file Swiss-made uh, gouges mm. to <laughs> hollow it out, and I sanded the life out of it, and. Um, <laughs> And I, yeah, and I loved it, you know, and I, and that's been a thing that's been, I guess, a common thread actually throughout um, my craft life is that I've really loved the things I've made. Mm-hmm. Um, and even now, like I could look back on one of those spoons and could be really critical of like, oh, it's not, you know, that's not been made very well, doesn't look very nice, doesn't work very well. Um, but at the time, you know, it was like a kind of really precious thing, you know, like, oh, sure. this is really lovely. I've made this thing and I really like it. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it's, awesome. um, I don't know whether you've heard of, um, do you follow Grain and Knot, Sophie Sellu? She's um, another, um, London spoon car. I believe I do. Yeah. Um, Mike probably does. Mike follows everybody. Yeah, I, I follow everybody. But yeah, I think I do. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen her stuff on there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I just remember talking to her actually about how she got into craft and, you know, she was, it, it sounds like she went to a great school as well and had a lovely teacher and, you know, she's like this kind of cute little teenager being like, Oh, it's really nice making stuff. And, you know, that, that's what it is like for me. You know, I was just like a little kid and like, isn't it lovely making stuff? And that, that's kind of just stayed with me. Right. Um, and it's, yeah, I think, is that the same for you guys? 
Yeah, I would I would say so. There's definitely there's something about beyond just like the the skill or the tool, just the act of it is really intriguing, enjoy, enjoy enjoyable. Um I don't know. I just yeah, I could totally agree with what you're saying. Yeah. I agree too. I mean I'm I've recently gotten started with, with uh spoon carving and blacksmithing uh after I met Mark and so it hasn't been that long. It's been maybe three or four years, but I mean, I was, I was never really crafty and, you know, as a kid, I did take woodshop when I was in high school and I remember making this little box, you know, um, just the one time I took woodshop and that was fun, but I can't really remember having a very crafty mindset at that age. But I think as I got older mm-hmm. and I, you know, I went to college, had a formal education, started a job. And after that, I realized that, you know, just a traditional job wasn't really that much purpose to me in life. So like I was chasing hobbies and I came across spoon carving and then soon after blacksmithing and that has like changed my outlook on life completely. Um, you know, I go to work to make enough money so I can come home and spend it on tools and <laughs> forging and blacksmithing. So that's kind of like, you know, I can't wait for my shift at work to be over so I can get home and do what I really enjoy doing. And that's, you know, green woodworking and, and, and blacksmithing. So I, my experience, I guess, is, is, is a little bit different. Um, than you know you and Mark's but but yeah I love it it's very therapeutic for me uh, I find a lot of peace in doing it and I, I think I I enjoy the journey but I also chase the product like I can't wait to see what it's going to look like when it's finished you know and then I sit with it for three hours and I'm like critiquing it you know like oh this doesn't look right and that doesn't look right let me go back and do this and so that whole process is just very enjoyable for me and it's somewhat obsessive like I, I do obsess occasionally and my wife thinks I'm crazy and I'm like I can't, I got to go back to the shop to do one more thing on this. <laughs> so, but it is fun. The whole process is very enjoyable for me. I think, you know, I, I definitely have uh, obsessive um, traits that I, I bring into a lot of different things or have brought into a lot of different things in my life. Right. And um, I would say it's probably only been healthy when it's been spoons. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's been great you know it's been great Uh, but um, yeah I totally totally obsessively chase new ideas or trying to perfect a form Um, and I love that and I I, I get really excited when I feel like I've discovered something new Mm. Um, but I also love just the repetition Mm. of like oh this is the same almost identical sharp knife that I was using yesterday mm. and I'm experiencing <laughs> almost identical knife grip and wood shaving coming off, but there's always just some variation and not that I'm looking for that variation, but it's just, I guess that depth of relationship for me, I find really rewarding, right. um, mm-hmm. that repetition. And for me, I, I, you know, I very much see a lot of my spoons like, a musician might look at uh, a song that they play mm. and I love, mm-hmm. you know, performing it over and over again and maybe changing it there and maybe overplaying it and be like, Oh, I'm not going to play this song for ages and play other songs. And right. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> yeah. I like that metaphor. And then you come back to them. Right. So once you were hooked, when did you say, I'm going to carve spoons for a living? Oh, good question. So, 
Well, I guess, yeah. So I, I guess I was, I mean, there's a lot to say, and I will try and quickly summarize. Where did we get to? So I got, uh, so I made, it's probably made my first spoon when I was like 17. I'd done a lot of woodwork and I wasn't completely sold on spoons then, but they were great. I actually went off to university. I studied biology. I came hmm. back. Um, I started working at the school uh, for a couple of years. And at, by that point, I'd got really into making wooden jewelry. Oh. Um, so quite, quite kind of archaic forms. Hmm. Um, and with the sense of um, functionality, that's what they were kind of organic shapes or basic, I guess, tool-like shapes, it, sometimes like spears or, um, but none of them you would look at and be like, this is exactly this. They were kind of sculptural pieces. Mm, um, so, and then I decided, right, I'm going to set up a wonderful ethical business. I'm going to be mm. an entrepreneur. I'm going to end up with employees who's, who they're going to love me and they're going to have a great <laughs> time and uh, and that, basically that completely flunked. So I ended up living in a bedsit in Bristol um, and I was getting breathing problems because I had a fret saw and a belt sander in my bedroom, basically. Oh, jeez. Oh, um, I know, not very sensible. Uh, <laughs> and so from there, um, I actually got in contact with Mike Abbott and um, went up and basically did a short, short friendship with him in the woods. Yeah. Um, and that's when I got really into spoons. So we, I learned kind of chair making, but chairs, although they're wonderful, there's a lot of effort in terms of design, mm. measurements, drying components, right. perfect bits of wood, blah, 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 take ages. Yeah. So for me, the spoons were the kind of um, the freedom, you know. And I think, you know, going back to the analogy of a musician, you imagine the freedom someone feels with a little acoustic guitar. If you've been trained to write, to, to compose music for orchestras, you know, to, for someone to be like, oh, well, how about just sitting on your bed and playing this acoustic guitar? That's, that's quite right. liberating, I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, so that, that's when I got really into it. Okay. Which I guess was um, 2000 eight maybe oh wow okay. um, when i went up to mike's place yeah. and i'd done quite a lot of things before that as well partly because of ray mears have you guys heard of ray mears yeah. oh yeah i love ray yeah. mears yeah <laughs> we got i kind of got into that kind of thing so that's probably where i got my first act um so kind of like a bushcrafty and... type thing yeah so it would have been a grand sort of act Mm. Um, and I got my first Mora knives and I would have, um, I bought a Santi Jav, um, spoon knife and basically went to the woods mostly to sit and eat sausages by the campfire and, um, <laughs> carve spoons. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like a perfect life to me. I'm, I'm curious about a thread in there that maybe is unspoken. So you went, you said you went to the university and studied biology and then you wanted, yes. you wanted to start an ethical business. I'm wondering, when you were in college, was there something that influenced that mindset? Like you wanted to have an ethical business? Was that influenced by your study of biology and, and nature? No. 
<laughs> I mean, I think, um, so I think I wanted to be a teacher. Oh. That was the plan. Right. And my ah. best friend, Hannah, me and my best friend, Hannah, we were both um, went to different universities. So you, you can do like a three-year degree in the UK. Oh, um, okay. And then if you want to become a teacher, you just go and do a postgraduate year. Um, oh. so, so you do a degree in your chosen field and then you do a, a year to learn how to teach. So we were going to both go and do our degrees and then I was, um, we were going to go to the same university and both become teachers. Um, hmm. But I, <laughs> I basically flunked, flunked <laughs> university. So I ended up a year behind her and she was like a super geek anyway. Um, <laughs> and so I kind of flirted with the idea of becoming like a, a teacher and I worked in schools, but it was um, a lot of different reasons really mm. um so but yeah i did uh, part of me really liked the idea if you imagine like a cute little kind of coastal village in the uk and taking little kids out to like rock pools and teaching them about stuff sure. that was that was once upon a time the idea um but i so when i was a teacher i actually handed in my notice to then go and do my formal training and that's when I then decided, no, I wanted to go and get good at something myself, right. um, huh. really. And that, that's when I wanted to, I was going to do this wooden jewellery thing. And I mean, it's just, I guess the ethical side just comes in because it's nice to, to wake up and look at yourself in the mirror and know that you're doing something nice, right. I guess. Right. Um, and sustainability is a sensible thing, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, go on. I was just going to say the Ray Mears thing is interesting to me because um, before I got into green woodworking, I was really into, and still am, but I was really into wild food and foraging, not so much the bushcraft aspect, but Ray Mears is definitely one of those people in that journey. I found his videos and just would get really hyped up watching, you know, his whatever it was, you know, going out in the wild and, you know, trying to sustain yourself. Um, it seems like that ties in to your eventual journey to become a traveling spoon carver. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, totally. I guess, um, I think the thing for me for a long time, actually, I was quite a shy, um, kid. And mm-hmm. I think, uh, I spent quite a lot of my teenage years, um, well, far too much of my teenage years, uh, smoking and taking drugs and um, <laughs> not getting on with my life. Mm. Right. And I think for a period of time, I, um, well, I stopped doing that and I started drinking coffee and watching TV, which <laughs> at least was a step in the right direction. Um, sure. <laughs> so... Over here, we have a program called Grand Designs, which uh-huh. is where people design their own homes. Right. And there yep. was a really amazing episode in that one where this guy who lived in a chestnut coppice um, built yep. his own home. And that was quite a big deal in this country for a lot of people. Mm. Um, but that program, I, I was really into that and Rainier. And then there was this other guy that was doing this thing called River Cottage. And he was just this crazy oh, guy. Yeah. Just go out and... Um, Yep. rear his own pigs and all that kind of stuff before it was trendy, I guess. Mm. 
Uh-huh. So it felt new, and I was really into that. And I suppose, um, you know, one day I just uh, had enough coffee to get up and actually do something about it. Mm. <laughs> I love that. That's great. It's funny, too, right, you mentioned yeah. the grand designs with Ben Law and then River Cottage. Those are two of the things that were, were really inspirational to me. Um, I've done some work in natural building, and then most of my work is in farming and uh, homesteading. So it's interesting that right. that's part, yeah. part of your influence. And I know in, when we talked to Maddie Whitaker, he said the exact same thing, actually. River Cottage was a huge influence on him. And then he did the Mike Abbott. And then he saw Ben Law building his own house. And then he got into natural building. So it's kind of interesting how there's so much overlap with all those influences. And someone like Hugh Friendly Whittingstall, who's done so much for not only for the local food movement, but um, I feel like just in terms of getting people connected to the land, that's been a lot of his mission is to get people, you know, back in touch with skills and being more self-sufficient and so on. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think those, those influences were, um, they were really big in this country. Um, And I suppose they were fulfilling a, a need but just wasn't being fulfilled. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all that um, Matty's uh, saying a sim- similar thing. And um, I'm very grateful for the TV. <laughs> 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 and, 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 you know, kind of jokes aside, I think in many respects now we should be very grateful for the internet, right? Oh, like you sure. guys are going to promote this on the internet and that's how people will Absolutely. listen to it. and. It has been an amazing thing, particularly within, you know, if I just think about what I know about within the spoon world, like it's had a a huge impact on the kind of exponential growth of knowledge. And, you know, just a few years ago, you couldn't get hold of someone that knew anything really about spoon carving. Right. Which is is why I set up Spoonfest, right? Like, like, well, I've learned everything I can from anyone in the UK. So I'm going to set up a festival so that we can afford to pay foreign people to come over. Yeah. Right. Then we can learn from them. Yeah. So, but now that kind of explosion of knowledge, the number of people that are great at carving spoons mm. and the, the crazy directions people go in, um, it's just fantastic. Yeah, it's just amazing. Absolutely. Kind of mind-boggling, really. It sure is. The Instagram world is just so big when it comes to spoon carving. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. And for me, I think, I hope it's a gateway into... Uh, an opportunity for people to think about their lives and the objects that they bring into their lives. Um, And I hope it's a chance for people to think about how they spend their time. Um, And craft is a wonderful thing to do with other people. Um, And then also just that, um, I think particularly with green woodwork, that connection with trees Mm-hmm. So suddenly then, even even just on that really basic level, this tree now has value to me because it can fuel my craft, which fuels me and makes me happy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And to give someone a reason to care about trees, I think, sure. is a wonderful thing. They're such an important part of our environment. Um, right. And that isn't to say that the oceans aren't important because obviously they are important. Right. But right. things 
things take us to the trees and I think that's a really wonderful thing. The more people care about trees and the more they want to look after them and to find a sustainable and fulfilling way that humans can have relationships with trees and forests and all of the um, fauna and flora that they support. Mm-hmm. You know, that's got to be a wonderful thing, right? That's got to be good. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, for sure. So back to the thread of your your career as it were um when did you kind of pull the plug as it were on your previous idea of what you're going to do and you were just full in on spoon carving and you were going to do whatever it took to make it work at least that's how i perceive your journey into becoming you know the peddler of spoons (laughs) (laughs) well see I should, part of me feels like I should be careful what I say, because I've, I've done this kind of interview a few times now, and I'll oh, okay. probably say something different every time. <laughs> um, so, I mean, my, I guess money's important, right? Mm. Like in the modern world, like money is definitely a thing. And um, I think it's important not to ignore that. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, I, I think that's something I'm proud of. Um, so I managed to save some money when I'd been teaching, which kind of sustained me, uh, to have a go at making the, um, ethical jewelry business, okay. which I might add, I, um, completely failed at. Um, <laughs> so I made, I made this stuff. People told me it was beautiful. And I remember I, t- I took it to shops and I was like, Oh, would you like, you know, would you like to sell this please? <laughs> And they'd be like, oh, that's so beautiful. It's wonderful. Um, yes, we would, would really like to sell this for you. I reckon we could probably sell it for six pounds, <laughs> which means we can give you two pounds fifty. Uh, and I'd be stood there on the inside, completely destroyed uh, and empty, and just being like, oh, that took me three hours to make. All um, right. Yeah. So, yeah. So from there, um, I actually got a job in a call center. You guys, do you have call centers in America? Oh yeah, yeah. My brother's worked in a couple. Plenty of them, of them here. It's pretty intense. Yeah. I suspect it's even worse now. It's probably not as bad as working for Amazon, but um, yeah. you're definitely hooked up to the machine and you're monitoring yeah. everything. Um, yep. So yeah, when when my kind of wooden jewelry business flopped, and I realised I did not have a clue how to make a living. Because I'd always just had jobs before that. Sure. Um, I went. I went and got a job in a call centre um, to support me. And I guess I was kind of trying to get the jewellery to work and doing the call centre thing for maybe a year. And that's and and during that year, that's when I started to engage with Mike Abbott. Um, and then I, you know, I actually managed to get like a bonus and some redundancy money. All a kind of happy coincidence. Um, <laughs> So, and then, so I had £3,000 in the bank account, which was the most money I think I'd ever had. Um, and that basically kept me going doing the Mike Abbott apprenticeship because he didn't technically pay you. Um, right. but he kind of gave you someone to live and he fed you, sure. um, which is quite, quite expensive for me. Not little. Um, so, yeah, so that's basically what happened. Um, so tried to make the wooden jewelry thing work that didn't really work got a bit of money from a call center and then you know that that year i ended up going up to mike abbott's 
um, and, and working with him for off and on, it was for two years. Um, mm. So the first year, I was probably only up, up there with him for about four months, I think, in total. Um, and then, then, so that was the big recession in 2008. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I was there for most of the next year, I guess, from kind of March to like October, November, something like that. Um, and then I actually moved on to the farm where he used to have his workshop. Hmm. Um, so unfortunately, well, uh, it's a long story. I don't know whether we should go into that, but um, he ended up leaving that place a few years ago, hmm. which wasn't entirely the plan. But now he's he's kind of teaching at home, which is looks like it's wonderful. I mean, he's got an amazing, he's got a lovely, lovely house. And a lovely garden. Mm. It's very, very British. <laughs> Love it. That's great. So yeah, so that's kind of what happened. I went up there, um, and I I ended up working for the farmer, um, and I was in a relationship that kind of fell apart, and I didn't really have any money, and that was the jumping off point, really. Um, I decided I, well, I, I needed to leave, and I actually mm. was a bit. Um, for want of a better word, I was a bit numb. Uh, so it wasn't really so much of a jump. <laughs> it was more of a kind of like, ah. Um, but I had, well, I do have these friends um, who work doing chestnut and coppicing. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. well, their, their main thing is making chestnut fencing over here. They're cool. They'd be great to do a podcast with. They're called um, hmm. Say It With Wood. Don't know whether you've heard Say of them. It with wood. Um, I haven't. I don't think so. I will make Say It With Wood. Yeah, check them out. Um, but yeah, I'd kind of been hanging out with them. And they had sold mistletoe. Do you guys do mistletoe at Christmas? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a fair bit that grows yeah. here as well. Um, so they used to sell mistletoe with a thing called Tedmas certificate, which is. Um, over here, it's basically like a police check. So it basically means that you can kind of send stuff stood on the street. Um, <laughs> and it's like, a, it's an old law. I think it's like from the 1800s. Okay. Um, and it's it's basically a police check. It just means that you're not a criminal and it's okay for you to kind of travel around selling stuff mm. as a peddler. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so... I basically thought, well, because I've been used to living in the woods and I didn't have any money or a better plan and I was becoming increasingly obsessed with spoons, I thought, right, I'm just going to travel around and live in the woods and sell spoons. Um, So, I mean, I had somewhere to live at the time and actually I went to um, the closest city a couple of times, a, a city called Bristol. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and just sat on the pavement carving spoons and um, people bought them. Yeah, just uh, I put them out in a little sort of kanky. It had a lot of help, actually. You know, these guys um, these guys gave me a lot of advice, which mm. was great, because you, you need help. You know, no, yeah. no one no one really does stuff by themselves. Um, no. 
so it might you know i think sometimes that's what's kind of pushed on me like this guy literally started with nothing and turned it into this thing and it's like well actually you know, lots of people kind of came around me and helped me do a thing um, right absolutely yeah, and I got a lot of advice from a lot of different people. A wonderful man gave me a sleeping bag. Um, <laughs> That's super he's nice. He's a fantastic, fantastic man. I haven't seen him for years. I don't, don't have any contact with him at all. He's called Kian. Um, so if you're listening to him, get in touch. But he used to walk everywhere. And um, one of the bits of advice he gave me was like, oh, well, if you're in a town, one of the best places to sleep is in a cemetery because between the graves, you get really flat bits of grass yeah. and um, teenagers don't bother coming in cemeteries and they won't bother you. <laughs> That's great. That's fantastic advice. Yeah. So, and he gave me this um, really lightweight sleeping bag. Um, and I had some things that I bought when I was earning money as a teacher so I had like my act and a head torch and, you know, all that kind of thing. And then yep. I went off. And actually, I, I, you know, I purposely got got fit before. Um, you know, I spent, <laughs> spent the winter kind of, I'd get up at six in the morning going for a run. And because I'd never really walked anywhere before. And the first walk I did, you know, I did like eight miles over a few days. Wow. Yeah. Um, and that was a real eye-opener for me. I've never really walked for more than two hours before. So, um, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. So, and yeah, it just, it really worked. Like the walking, the walking was amazing. And um, that was so, so good for my mind. And then the kind of having a little fire at night time. Um, was very special hmm. um, and I don't know whether you guys have experienced that kind of thing just by yourself with a little fire but it is a wonderful thing because um, you only need a tiny tiny fire and you can be right next to it and yeah. it becomes your little friend and your little home um, and as the light kind of draws in and it gets dark um, you know the little little tiny patch of woodland that's lit up by your tiny little fire just becomes your little living room um yeah that's lovely and i was yeah you know waking up waking up on the ground and um hearing the other animals kind of waking up the birds and you know digging a hole in the morning uh for your morning rituals and making yourself a cup of tea and getting up and out it was yeah i mean it's it's weird because obviously, you know, I don't think about this kind of stuff really anymore. I'm afraid to say, you know, it's not it's not my life now. So, right. it for me, this is really like, well, I'm not about to cry, but it's quite emotional, kind of thinking it through. And you're like, oh, that yeah, really yeah. was, you know, like that that was so empowering, and I'd been in such a bad way, and for that simplicity of cutting a branch off a tree or cutting down a little tree. And turning it into something that I felt was beautiful and was mm. worthwhile doing and that someone else would give me money for that I could then go and spend on a pasty and some coffee and sustain myself. Yeah. That was an amazingly empowering thing. And um, I really felt energized by it all. Um, 
yeah it was wonderful and it completely life-changing um yeah completely life-changing really I can imagine around here the most uh the closest thing to that that i, I haven't experienced myself but we live right near the blue ridge um or sorry the appalachian trail and so mm. there's you know tons of people hike that north and south all year and we've had a number of people stop in at our farm because we're only a few miles from the one of the um overnight areas and they a lot of people say the exact same thing just being on the trail and walking and observing nature and getting to be with your thoughts and just the simple like you end up you zero in on the most basic things to mm. stay alive um but what's cool about what you did is you were doing that but then you were also you know in the process figuring out where your next spoon was going to come from as well which i think is really interesting like as you were walking how did you like what was your i don't what are the regulations i guess in england like how, how did you know where you could find your wood on uh, your trail? Well, I mean, that, that's a really good good point because at the moment they're actually trying to change the law where huh. uh, i'm not i'm not a lawyer so i don't understand this stuff in detail but it used to be and and still is the case that um you can't be arrested for trespassing mm-hmm. um, right because because it's not a criminal offence. Right. Um, so it's civil law. Um, mm-hmm. And they're actually trying to change that law now. Um, so there are some freedoms in this country, which is good. And I would prefer there to be more. So somewhere like Sweden or Scotland, you can travel around where you like and you can camp mm. where you like. Um, and I think that's, that's a good thing. I think people should be allowed to exist. I think so. <laughs> yeah. In the, the muddle of us trying to figure out how on earth we're going to get 7 billion people to behave themselves <laughs> and to live a good life, we forget right. that we're all just born naked into this world and right. we should be allowed to exist. Right. You should mm-hmm. be allowed to exist without a mortgage. You should be allowed to exist without a job and you should have some say in how things are done purely because you were brought into this planet and Mm -hmm. it shouldn't just be based on you know who you were born to right uh, or or what what powers you have within your work so i think my personal belief is that you should be able to walk places you should be allowed to sleep you should have access to water you know, they're pretty simple things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, I don't think any society can look themselves in the mirror and consider themselves to have any dignity at all if that isn't open to everyone. Right. You know, there, there's no, that's, that's a sickness. <laughs> that is a sickness. If, mm-hmm. if you can't offer that to everyone. Um, Anyway, let's not get me on to capitalism. What were we even talking about? Um, yeah, you're talking, walking you're around. Talking about... so the one thing I was going to say is it's quite different because um, the UK is very small. Right, so you can right. walk for kind of 10 miles and you'll come across a little woodland and then, you know, there'll be like a little village and then, you know, there's, there's a lot going on. Right. Um, it's not like wilderness. And I guess if I tried to do the same thing in the US, I would have um, carried probably more food and stayed in the woods for like a week or so at a time and then, yep. then tried to find 
Um, but often I was just in the woods and I'd go go into a town every day, mm. you know, mm-hmm. sit and sell my spoons, um, get myself a cup of coffee. Yeah, that's, that's so that's what it was more like. Um, so you so, you basically based on the um, I forget what type of law you called it, but um, based on that old law, you could just wherever there was woodland, you were at liberty to harvest whatever material you needed? Yes. So technically, not legally, no. But I have to say, I felt at liberty and did. Um, okay. Yeah. Nice. So... Um, over here, I think I think it's something like fifty percent of our woodlands are kind of unmanaged, but they're tiny. Yeah, they probably yeah. should be managed. So they're old yep. coppices, and um, it's quite a contentious thing. And I'm not going to pretend to know it inside out, but often large landowners get given subsidies, just leave bits of woodland and not really do anything with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's weird rules around woodland over here, so you don't have to pay inheritance tax, and hmm. um, you don't have to pay tax on selling the wood and that kind of stuff. So it's often just stuff for, for rich guys to just mess around with. And, right. Um, a lot of those woods, basically, I would just be walking along, and I'd think, well, that looks like a nice wood. I'm going to sleep in there. And to be honest, I was kind of helping out, because really a lot of these woodlands should have been thinned out a long time ago. Mm, absolutely. Um, yeah, so sure. I never felt any guilt. Well, no, that's not true. I felt guilty once when I took, I took a really like perfect bent branch off this um, field maple tree. Mm. And it was <laughs> such a nice tree. And it had this bright white scar. Like <laughs> I <kind of laughs> the branch off and everywhere I turned around and everything was just so lovely. It's perfect immaculate <laughs> woodland that it looked like it hadn't been touched by human hand for I don't know a hundred years. Wow. Um, mm. You know there was no real footpaths there, um, mm. and actually in that same woodland I'd been walking along this path, or I thought it was a path, and then um, it kind of turned into a tunnel that I couldn't fit through, and I realised it was just where badgers had been walking. Along. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that I did feel really guilty. It was one time I was like, oh, I'll actually kind of, I mean, this even makes it worse, really. This is like a dirty secret. So I kind of like, I just got a bit of mud and rubbed it on the scar so it looked like brown <laughs> and then just went on, went on my way. Try to pretend that I'm not a baddie. <laughs> I think that's really, I, it's interesting you mentioned that you felt at liberty because one of the biggest problems that we have here in most of the woodlands, of, at least in this part of the country, is they're horribly undermanaged to the point where um, the average woodland has very few, you know, useful trees. They're split, they're broken, yeah. um, they're crooked. And so woodland management is, is something that is, um, yeah, it's just like a, it's a, a chronic issue here. There's undermanaged, they're overcut. So I actually am really... I think that's really intriguing that you were sort of like a rogue woodland manager, <laughs> almost offering like a free service in a lot of ways. Um, <laughs> um, you know, it'd be yeah, one thing. I if mean, you I'm not mo- sure I could claim to have been managing any woodland if, if I'm being serious, but I, I totally agree with you. And I think 
it's different in different countries. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm all for wonderful wilderness being mm-hmm. left to nature as much as possible um, and finding ways for humans to share it and enjoy it. Yep. Um, but I also I'm a big fan of managed woodland and managing mm-hmm. it not just from the uh, from the point of view of a product, but also from right. the point of view of conservation and recreation and sustainability and you know the future generations and for carbon and and it's not difficult. That that's Mm-mm. the thing that really winds me up is that <laughs> I don't think I don't think actually the practicalities or the science or the morality around any of that is difficult. Um, No, I think it's just, just trying to persuade the powers that be that it should be done that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And all that requires is a huge swell of people. And I think that's what gets me excited. You know, when you're saying like you go on Instagram and there's just film cars everywhere. Yeah. You know, if we had a spoon carver in every village, in every town, in every country, and they set up these little meetings where people would carve spoons together and talk about how much they love trees, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't take much to think, well, maybe the next step could be like a real change. You mm-hmm. know? And that might not be, that might not be in the next five or ten years, but that's what I want. That's what, that's. That's the legacy I want for spoon carving. Yeah. 20 years time. I, I, you know, I want to be on my deathbed thinking, do you know what? That group of spoon carvers, they did a good job. They spread the good word and we're looking after trees. Mm-hmm. I love it. That's yeah. great. Yeah. That, that's a, I'm a, that's a topic I'm very passionate about because before I got into spoon carving, um, <clears throat> I was, already studying things like agroforestry and coppicing and um, a lot of the traditional woodland management techniques. So when I got into it, I was always thinking of my craft as a strategic, almost like a a way to commercially incentivize woodland management. Mm. And that's what I try to do too in harvesting my wood. I don't just go and best tree. I try to you know, I have many uses for wood besides spoons or bowls or whatever I'm going to make. So I try to think long term, how do I interact with the woodland so that I can take what I need, but also improve it overall for everything, like you're saying, for all the different things that forests offer as an as an ecosystem. So I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I feel like that is one of the, it's maybe a missing topic that doesn't get highlighted very much. Um but I feel like there is something there, a strategic, yeah, like a strategic way that spoon carving and green woodworking can have a really positive impact across the landscape. Just the same way I feel about regenerative agriculture and small scale farming and local food in terms of farmland. Yeah. And just like with the food, like let them enjoy the spoons first, you know, right. let them get really hooked and, um, then, then get preachy. Because, <laughs> you know, then they're sold on it already, right? They've got a reason to care. Yep. Um, and really, the rest is just education. It's just sharing, sharing knowledge and sharing information and sharing ideas. Um, Absolutely. 
So, um, so from your time as a peddler, and hopefully that's a uh, not a derogatory term. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it's not. I don't think so. No. Okay. Good. Um, it just means to sell stuff. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Around here, around here, the average person and might think you know, like salesperson that's trying to get you to buy something you don't need. <laughs> that's not how I personally view it. I just I love that yeah, word also. Yeah. Just. And actually, here in the South, there's a huge tradition of peddling right. as a way of right. life where people would travel, just like you were doing with spoons in the South. It was common for someone to walk through these small towns yeah. all throughout the Appalachian Mountains to sell different things yeah, the, off of a cart or whatever. The neighborhood where I live in uh, right. is yes. called Peddler Mills. Exactly. And yeah. Peddler River goes right by my house. Exactly. So yeah. It's a very common term that you know, we use here. So. Yeah. That's right. Um, right. So you 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 went that it seems like that experience then led you to thinking this is just my take on it is your thinking is well I could do this but for a bigger audience if I were in a place that had really high foot traffic and so is that kind of how the London shop came about your experience traveling and then all of a sudden you I don't know what incentivized it but that's kind of how I look at it is maybe you're thinking how could I get this out to more people. Yes, yes and no. I think um, I wasn't necessarily thinking how can I get this to more people. Uh, I don't think I was thinking big, really. Um, mm. I suppose, I, yeah, that I was trying to think bigger than I was. So <laughs> I think, you know, I kind of, I, I didn't travel through the winter, but I did travel oh, okay. um, from kind of March, April through to like, September, October. Um, okay. So, so one year I was on a farm doing some forestry work, helping, um, you know, with an apple harvest. And cool. the next year I actually tried to, well, I was helping this guy set up a commune for people in a crisis. So we were doing craft and forestry. Um, hmm. So actually that winter I didn't sell that many spoons. I mean, I still peddled spoons, but I didn't do that much. Um and then the winter after that, I actually lived with some friends in Bristol in a house share. Um, mm. And I would go and sit on the pavement every day and sell my spoons. Mm. So that's probably when you saw um, one of those first videos. And that wasn't because okay. I wanted to do it. It was um, one of my housemates was getting into filming. That, huh. was, um, that was his thing. And now he's like a documentary maker. Nice. That's cool. So, so yeah, I mean... The the London thing came about actually because of Mike Abbott. Um, he a school got in contact with him and said that they wanted to do green woodwork and they put um, and he put them in touch with me. Hmm. So at the time I was spending quite a lot of time around Oxford in a woodland there and selling spoons in Oxford. Um, and at the time, I felt like I was living a really wonderful life, but was quite a selfish life. And I was quite lonely um, because you don't really get to meet a girl when you're sat on the pavement as a tramp. Um, <laughs> and it's awkward to be like, hey, do you want to come back to the wood? <laughs> so, yeah. I wanted to move to London to, I guess, move forward with my life. And, okay. um, no, I mean, I didn't, I didn't want to move to London. 
I mean, I I wanted to move somewhere where there would be people mm, and I right. could move on with my life. And I wanted to contribute more to the community. You know? Right. So um, kind of social, socially driven. Yes, yeah, because I felt like I wasn't really contributing much, you know. I was just making some spoons, basically. Um, so anyway, I got got invited to the school, and it was amazing. <laughs> so they um, they had a shower there and uh, table tennis tables, and I was completely sold. And I was like, well, I live in the park, <laughs> and the kids won't be scared of me because I won't smell because I'll use the shower. And, um, <laughs> I will get to play table tennis, nice. which is a dream. And I have actually just recently bought a table tennis table, which oh, made yeah. me very happy. Nice. I love um, table tennis. Mike, Mike and I game. get pretty heated over table yeah. tennis. <laughs> very competitive. God, I wish you were here right now. We could, we could totally have done this over a game of table tennis. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Next time we're in the UK. <laughs> Brilliant. Just bring it. Yeah. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, basically that that's what happened. Um, so I was going to do uh, a day or two a week at the school and um, sleep in the park and sell spoons to Londoners. Um, and you know, I thought that might go on for six months. You know, um, and I guess it kind of took off from there. Really. Hmm. So. Um, I knew a guy that owned, um, well, it was actually like a music studio and had this tiny little shop front that he wasn't using. Um, so I said to him, look, rent me a shop. <laughs> it wasn't as simple as that. He took quite a lot of convincing, actually. Um, but in the end, um, he said, let's give it a go. And uh, that was only on the promise of a few months. Um, huh. And that was in 2012. So, wow, a long time ago. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, and I actually signed signed a lease for the shop um, last year for another five years. I think. Oh, Four, nice. Five mm, years. Yeah. Very nice. Um, and that's actually with a different uh, different landlord. So, um, and this guy actually lives quite close to me now. Um, in the West Country, which is quite nice. So, hmm. um, but it's still a musician, so that's a really <laughs> nice thing. So, uh, I mean, it's it, it, I kind of I do miss that. I do miss that because actually I did have quite a cool little social life with my shop. Hmm. Um, when I first opened the shop, there was nothing on that street. All oh, all wow. the high street shops were pretty much dead. Um, some of them were like trade shops, mm -hmm. so you'd never see anyone going in there. And um, hmm. it's because they had quite big spaces downstairs, which which mine, like I said, is a music studio, so I didn't I didn't use that. Um, whereas right. the others were like handbag shops, hmm. um, but they didn't sell any handbags to anyone. They just sold handbags to other shops. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So there was like one coffee shop, and it was owned by the guy that owned the pub, and he was just trying to give more life to the street so that his properties mm -hmm. were worth more money. So he kind of subsidized this coffee shop um, and me. Uh, and there was hmm. a, a few few kind of pop-up shops happened every now and again. Um, but slowly over the last eight years, it's kind of come to life. Hmm. And there's now a fantastic cafe next door, Lanark, um, run by a Scottish guy um, who's lovely. And there was a really nice kind of 
social club, really, that were just people that would go and sit in that cafe. And it's tiny. I mean, I don't know whether you've ever seen what my shop looks like, but it is tiny. Yeah, Um, I've seen photos, but never really had a good sense of the scale. Um, Well, you're not going to get more than four people in there comfortably, put it that way. okay. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, I guess, I mean, I really should know the measurements of my shop. (laughs) Uh, but I honestly don't. I guess it is, um, it's probably something like four by three meters, something okay. like that. Yeah. So about, about 10 by 12 foot. Yeah, so. 10 by 12. Yeah. Yeah. Like so, yeah, but there, there's like, I don't know, there's seven or eight different musicians. And actually there's a, there's a dark room. So the, the new guy that bought the kind of music studio in my shop, He's my landlord. He's actually set up um, one of the rooms downstairs as a dark room and does these kind of oh, fancy wow. photos. Um, cool. And they're really nice people. And there's like, there's a crazy kind of drag act that <laughs> one of the guys <laughs> does. And um, some pretty serious musicians. Um, huh. And um, yeah, some very successful musicians as well, actually. Uh, so that's been cool, and and there's some fake. There's actually on that row of shops underground now. Three of them have got music studios, um, including my one. So, and there's a very famous uh, studio around the corner called the Premises. And you go into if you go into the cafe there, there's all these kind of photos of famous musicians on the wall. Huh. Um, interesting. Cool. And there's a super flash market, actually, Columbia Road Flower Market, which has become a bit of a kind of touristy thing now, but it's very old school (laughs) and there's like cobbled um, road. So it's often, the road is often blocked off because film crews are there doing stuff for films from the olden days. Period period films. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, the shop's been a wonderful, a wonderful thing, but I am um, enjoying the freedom of not having to be in a shop. Mm. Um, so that's nice. And I'm really enjoying being in the countryside. Spending yeah, time by the river. Yeah. It's wonderful looking at birds and fish jumping out the river and mm. you know, taking things a bit more easy, really. Which is <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah, Mark and I both live pretty much in the country. Oh yeah, we live very much in the country. Very much in the country. So, I was just going to say, we like it that way. Yeah, for sure. We're country I mean, you just being, yeah, just soaking yourself in nature, I think. For sure. It's wonderful being around trees. And that's that's something that's really great around here, actually, that some, uh, the kind of habitat changes so much, partly because of how it's been managed um, by um, the Forestry Commission, mm. Uh, mm. but also just because of the geology um, and geography of the landscape around here. It's so varied, you know, and you can go into a little woodland and um, it's kind of all rocky and loads of yew trees. And then, you know, two miles away, there's like this huge beach woodland and mm. Then you're down by the river, and it's all different there too. So it's nice to have have that variety. And I've got a garden, you know. So <laughs> um, nice. 
yeah, if you guys are into farming, then it won't seem a lot to you. But I've got 130 <laughs> foot of garden, which in the UK is nice. a very big garden no, for, for right, a cheap nice. house that I bought. Um, it's a big garden. And, um, you know, someday, if, if I could have afforded a farm, I would have bought one. But um, that, that isn't, you don't really get there from spoons, I'm afraid, in the UK. <laughs> yeah. So you almost you almost I have do. your own river cottage, huh? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I don't think I want. I'm. I'm. I'm going to get chickens, um, but I don't. I don't think I'm going to be going getting pigs and things like that. <laughs> um, we've we haven't really done much with the garden yet. But, you know, we've got like a little apple tree and a plum tree, and oh, cool. um, there was a fair amount of stuff growing here already. So. Um, like rub- a bit of rhubarb and some fennel mm. and strawberries and what else have we got going on? Um, got any gooseberries or currants or? Not successful, no. Mm. I mean, it, I think someone good with gardens um, was living here maybe seven years ago. And then mm. I think for a few years it's been pretty neglected. Um, okay. So yeah, there's not there's not a lot of established stuff, um, but yeah, it's nice to see the strawberries. Absolutely, and the apple tree is always nice. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it's been a bit stormy recently, so we've lost uh, lost a few to the wind, um, but uh, yeah, they're pretty much there, which is nice. Hmm. And the plums were great. Uh, so yeah and it's just nice to have space yeah i can imagine especially after living in a sounds like basically like 120 square foot and not living but spending most of your time in a 120 square foot uh shop and then now being in the open air um it's got to be quite the quite the change of scenery yeah and comfort <laughs> yeah it's really great we've been canoeing and that's our plan is to get some canoes and spend a good amount of time doing that on the river next year. Lovely. Um, That's awesome. So, so from a willow tree in my garden, which is really mm. nice. Gives some nice shade. We've done quite a lot of barbecues actually, because you know the whole kind of being outside thing. Um, so we normally don't edit Sloydcast, but we got into some chat about. COVID-19 stuff and it was a little bit off topic so I cut that out and now I'm gonna cut back into the conversation yeah yeah I really hope so we're doing this thing called the rule of six now so you're not allowed groups of more than six Um, so we just started doing classes again and uh, we we'd normally have I don't know eight or twelve people depending on what we're teaching so we've just got to have to well I'm not entirely sure what what the rules are we're just waiting for the government to pull their finger out and actually <laughs> fill out all the details um and uh yeah then we're probably gonna have the email punters and be like oh we've got to rebook or yeah, yeah. It's a bit of a sure speaking uh, of which uh, you know um, oh, go, ahead. go on i was just going to say I'm i'm very grateful to you know to be honest, I'm going to Instagram and um, my customers that buy my spoons and mm. the fact that I've been able to 
exist through this by kind of working at home and yeah. we've managed to keep keep our full-time employee on um, right. and that's you know that's really down to support through the internet really through people that right. we're connected to um selling spoons and online classes and that kind of stuff um, right and you so you yeah have a, you have a pretty wide reach and that was actually what i wanted to ask you next was from your spoon shop in london um you mentioned Spoonfest, and we've gone into that in previous episodes, um, which you're welcome to say whatever you like about that. But also the Greenwood Guild and the Spoon Club. Um, there's a few other things I wanted to bring up that I think that you've, as contributions to the spoon carving community, have been really, um, especially the teaching and the online thing has been really, I'm not a part of the Spoon Club, but um, I've you know seen the things you're sharing on there and all the different people you've gotten on there to share their different techniques or take on things. Um, I've seen the the videos you did at Spoonfest, which are really nice. So yeah, how, how did that sort of evolve out of, did that all evolve out of your London shop? Well, no, not really. Um, I don't know. I mean, the shop, the shop was a really big deal for about three years. And, okay. and it was, it was the majority of the way that I was making my living. Um, and it was the vast, vast majority of my time was just spent sat in the shop carving spoons. Yeah. Um, I think things changed when I, t- when I took on um, apprentices, when I took on people to try and make them a living. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing how things have grown now. It's, it's possible to make a living, which it just, you know, I suppose it, it wasn't really. Um, huh. I'm a bit like a birch tree. I've kind of just gone out there by myself to try and make it happen. Uh, and, that, and now all the oak trees are growing up and I'm getting, uh, getting drowned out. Um, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's amazing really. Actually, I look at people, um, well, I guess, you know, people like Adrian Lloyd, who mm-hmm. set up this cool woodwork school up in Cumbria, um, Adam Hawker. Yeah. Um, Anna Cassidy, uh Sam Spoons. There's there's a lot of people who I've taught who are now off doing their own thing, um, mm. which is amazing, really. You know, I think that's, yeah, it's great. And I, I guess, um, yeah, what has come about from the shop, I suppose... I don't really know. I guess I'd be doing all of these things anyway, right? Like Spoonfest. I set up Spoonfest uh, before the shop. Okay. Um, and I was teaching before I had the shop. Um, I guess that's the, the, the main thing that changed was the shop kind of made me feel like it would be good to bring more people in, not just into the spoon kind of... Um, I was going to say fraternity, but that sexist family <laughs> is the word I'm looking for into the spoon family and all the best spoon carvers are women anyway. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I guess I've done quite a lot and, and the, it's nice to be in a big family, right? Like mm-hmm. there's no, um, that desire to share is not, about trying to make money but it's also not an altruistic thing either right. it's mm, like certainly. you know when you share your passion and other people are into it 
but it's like playing table tennis, right? Like you can't <laughs> play table tennis by yourself. That would be really dull. Right. Yeah. And like to have lots of people to play table tennis with would be great. Right. And that's how I kind of see spoon carving. Yeah. So there, there was that side of it. But then the shop, I suppose the thing that changed with the shop is just, if you, if you think about it as a kind of like this tiny little micro business, that then mm. you need to try and engage other people somehow. Um, so that, I think that changed that. And that's where the teaching the Greenwood Guild came from because um, mm. we had Tom and he wanted to earn some money. And I was like, well, you know, we've got this other space, which I actually got to forging hooked on so I could be doing turning. Um, mm. And I thought, well, I'll teach the spoon carving and you could teach a three-legged stool. That's a pretty simple class. You know, mm. we just we'll make some shaving horses and that's where it came from really. And also just sure. thinking what would be cool, you know, like at, at Spoonfest, I was like, well, you know, you, you realize what the problems are, right? So you teach those people spoon carving and they're like, oh my God, spoon carving is amazing. But <laughs> no one cares about living sharpening. So how do you get them to care about sharpening? Well, you teach a forging class. Right. Mm. So, um, you know, Nick Westerman had only really just come onto the scene. He used to be an artist, blacksmith, and I'd helped him quite a lot with designing spoon knives along with a load of other woodworkers. I mean, he went about mm. it the right way. He contacted a load of woodworkers and he was like, hey, I'm an expert in shaping metal, but you guys know how to shape wood with metal. Can you, can you help me with the shapes of the tools I huh. should make? Um, right. So anyway, he, he came to a spoon fest and forged an axe as a demo and taught knife making. But then suddenly, you know, sharpening is this kind of really cool thing because you forge this bit of hot metal and you put it on a handle and yeah, and I guess it's all kind of evolved from that really. I suppose the other thing that, you know, because I'm so passionate about turning and toolies are just these wonderful things here, like how can you get people engaged in using a tool lathe? Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so I mean, we did crazy things with the Greenwood Guild, and it's been all sorts of things. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we pay we pay rent and a lot of tax in one of the most expensive cities in the world. Right. Um, right. So I, I, I mean, I've I've tried lots of different things to make it work over the years, um, and it was never I never wanted to run a business. Mm. What I want, I want to inherit a massive farm <laughs> and invite thousands of people to come and hang out, manage trees and make things out of wood. Right. You know, that's what I'd like to do. If I had all the money in the world, that's what I would do. Right. Um, but, you know, when you don't have that opportunity, um, then you do the next best thing. Um, so you're engaging right. people, but you're saying, well, hey, you know, I have to pay this guy and I've got to pay this rent and so can you give me this money and you know, we'll make it happen. You can carve a bowl and, you know, Tim can have baked beans on toast for dinner and yeah, we're, we're all laughing. Yeah. That's great. Um, I love it. Yeah. It's a great way to describe how it became a business. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very good. I mean, you have the customer base there in London. I mean, there's so many people there and the interest is, is there. So it's, it's kind of nice to be in that location, but you know, it comes with, with all the different expenses, like you were saying. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, I ended up in London by accident, really. And I wanted to leave a long time ago. Um, 
and it's taken me a lot longer to leave than plans. Um, sure. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not quite proud of it yet. Um, I'm proud. <laughs> like of, I'm proud of myself for finding something that I really love doing, mm. and I find my work incredibly rewarding, which mm. is amazing. Mm. And I'm very fortunate for that. Right. Um, I think. I think when the business is more stable um, and more successful and can support more people better, then I'll be proud. Yeah. Um, mm. And there's a little way to go yet. I'm proud of Spoonfest. That was a really good idea. Um, yeah. And people really loved that. Oh, for sure. So, yeah, it sounds like yeah. it's got like I'll, a I'll credit a myself with that. Absolutely. We've been uh, we've been inspired by Spoonfest and trying to create. I wouldn't say something that's like Spoonfest, but um, slowly we've been having some gatherings here at the farm that I live on, and uh, really? definitely see when we even when the small group of people. You know, like last year we had I don't know twenty people or so, um, and a lot of people that aren't super experienced. It's cool. That's what I always find is really cool. Is I've taught some classes, but it's different when. Um, it's just like a bunch of people hanging out and there's not like a, you didn't pay someone to teach you this thing, you know, it's a little more casual. So you end up exploring a lot more and doing more experimental projects and people can, you know, riff on things and stuff. So we've been really inspired by the Spoonfest concept and, and, um, yeah, we kind of have an idea for something we might try to pull off here in the future. Mm-hmm. And hopefully we can come to Spoonfest at some point in the future. Yes. Uh, it's definitely on the bucket list yes. for Sloydcast. Uh, definitely come. There's just uh, it's, it's it's such a beautiful place, and so many wonderful people come with just uh, this crazy spoon love. Uh, right, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It's, um, yeah, it's really great. Yeah. How many, how many folks are showing up to Spoonfest? Like, how many showed up last year? So, I think it's about 300. So, it's time. Oh, wow. Really. That's, that's pretty um, big. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a very, very cute thing. And a lot of really wonderful volunteers help us run it. Um, and they come back year after year and they put in loads of hard work and... Mm people kind of look after each other and have a nice time. Yeah. That's wonderful. That's what it is. So it's weird that it's been an inspiration. Um, I think that's something (laughs) that I get told a lot about my shop as well. Um, And you, you know, you, you never think about that, right? That's not your everyday. You don't go like, Oh, this thing I've done is an inspiration. Um, but every now and again, someone will tell you, and normally with the shop, I'm kind of horrified because I'm like, you know, they'll be like, I gave up, I've given up my job and I'm now doing this full time. And I'm like, oh my God, you must be so stressed. I hope you're okay. Um, but yeah, at least, at the very least with Spoonfest, the fact that, um, I mean, I, I have no idea really why it was such an inspiration because there were other things going on. But um, now loads of people doing these kind of green woodworky festival things all over the world and i just can't think of anything better for sure you know lovely lovely thing and yeah i think 
for me. So that's kind of where Spoon Club, well, I suppose, I mean, Spoon Club actually happened before Spoon Fest. But for years, I've been kind of encouraging at Spoon Fest, being like, mm-hmm. you know, you guys can kind of do something similar to this at home, but just, you know, on like a weekly thing or a monthly thing with maybe like mm. 10 or 20 of you. Um, and then you've got this kind of web of people connected. And then... Mm-hmm. Um, I love the fact that Spoonfest, there's people that I only see once a year at Spoonfest. And it's like, right, right. That has, it's almost like there's been no days in between. Because when you're <laughs> in that kind of Spoonfest bubble, right. it's like you've been there forever. Wow. And you're, you're always going to be there. Wow. Um, and it's funny, I actually felt that at Greenwood Fest, because I went to that, I've been to that twice, I uh-huh. think, with a year in between, or something like that. But there were people there, and you're just like, hey, how's it going, Rick? You know, it's like, it's just like there's <laughs> been, cool. it's like, you know, it's almost like you've just said goodnight to him the night before, and then you're like back at it. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I just think that's lovely. That's awesome. So I think people often misuse the word community. Um, mm-hmm. I think sometimes, sometimes it's almost used as a weapon. And um, mm. I think real, real community mm. um, isn't a marketing tool. Uh, real community is a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's what, uh, well, it's everything that's great about humanity. And it's mm. not just about spoons and it's not just about nature. You know, community is all over the place. And it's, it's more important than spoons, right? Sure. But the fact that some people build communities around uh, spoon carving, I think, is really lovely. And, and for a lot of people, that's maybe just a couple of old guys or a couple of old gals in a shed, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just like yeah. chewing the fat, carving a spoon, right. and that's a yep. lovely thing. Right. Kind of like what we do. That's pretty much <laughs> it. <laughs> well, Barn, um, we could honestly go on and on and on. It sounds like maybe we need to do a part two to we this. We sure do. At some point in the future. We sure do. Um, totally. Well, I do go on a bit. If you give me a coffee, I'm I'm a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> I've I been told I edit down well, so I don't know whether you're going to edit this, but um, yeah, mm. feel free to cut out as much of the um, chat as you like. Nah, we like to keep it raw. Yeah, we keep it, we keep it <laughs> natural, we keep it natural flow. <laughs> um, well, yeah, it's. Uh, I don't want to keep you too long. Also, don't want to. I don't want to overrun our listeners minds um i know i have more questions i would love to ask you and things to talk about um but is there anything that we haven't talked about so far that you'd like to mention or um offer before we close out the interview yes Um, no uh i'll be (laughs) honest god knows god knows what i've said for the last two hours or how long it is but um if you're still listening, congratulations. Uh, and you probably, <laughs> you've made it. You've probably carved two or three spoons by now. So, yeah. <laughs> Happy days. I apologize for, um, yeah. How about some word of Thank advice? You so much of your time. How about some word of advice for our new spoon carvers or green woodworkers? Um, well, really nail sharpening. Mm. Um, make friends with someone... Uh, with plenty of green wood um, <laughs> experience, and yeah, don't be don't be too hard on yourself. Right, it's all going to be fine. That's great. <laughs> That's, That's great. Great advice. And we have one question we ask all of our 
uh, guest, and that is, what does Sloyd mean to you? <laughs> <laughs> In one sentence. Oh, what does <laughs> no, no, no limit. What does Sloyd mean to me? Um, I would say uh, Sloyd or Kraft is like a song and it means everything to me wow. that uh, mm. a song a song can awesome i love that that's great <laughs> that's really that's great it's poetic Lovely. and a uh, lot to unpack cool well um yeah it's been awesome barn chatting and getting to know more about your journey yeah. um honestly we'd love to have you back on in the future there's so much more we could talk about and i'm sure as time goes on there'll be even more things that come up um if folks want to more learn about, excuse me. If folks want to learn more about what you're doing, where should they go? Uh, well, I suppose uh, follow me on Instagram, which is just on the spoon. And um, if they want to get hold of a hundred hours of quality content, um, head over to Spoon Club and sign up. Right. So uh, that's my top tip. Yeah. Awesome. And thanks for those. inviting me onto your show. It's um, it's great. I don't normally people don't normally listen to me for this long. <laughs> um, yeah, you kind of have to because well, it's a podcast. Well, we're green. We're Greenwood yeah. geeks, so we we you know we can talk Greenwood working for days. <laughs> yeah, and I, we we just think it's really special to have these people that you most people only interact with through a photo right. and some little bit of text, right. and to hear so much more about you know everyone's story and especially your philosophy. I feel like that's one of the most I was actually having a conversation with a friend recently who's a forager for a living and teaches foraging and, and so on, which I've done a little bit of and um, totally a tangent, but it's relevant. <clears throat> um, he was he was talking about how, you know, in the wild food world on Instagram in particular, it's like it's a lot of people just saying kind of the same thing like, oh, it's spring and here's nettles and here's how you identify them and here's how you cook them and so on. <laughs> and it's like at some point it's like, only so many people can say that before it's like what more is there to foraging and i feel like that's what sloydcast is right. for the green woodworking community it's like what is inspiring people and keeping them going because right. you know i get exhausted looking at pictures of spoons and bowls i love how many i love seeing what everyone's doing but at some point you know there's more there's got to be more to yeah. it and this is kind of our yeah, service yeah. i think to the greenwood community is right. to share the story behind those pictures and people we want to get personal <laughs> brilliant yeah brilliant well i hope i haven't ruined it for you no it's um, been, it's, no, yeah, it's it's been great it's been lovely crossed. yeah it's been wonderful all right barn well um thank you again and i'm sure we'll be in touch in the future yeah and we hope to see you maybe one day at yeah. Spoonfest. <laughs> in the flesh yeah yeah happy days all right spoon on i'll catch you guys <laughs> later do i just hang up Yes. Yep. Yes. Have a good night. Yeah. Yeah, you too. I'm going to go to bed. All right. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. See ya. All right. How about that? Wow, that was just <laughs> incredible. Incredible. <laughs> it's a, it's amazing, you know, the like I was just saying, it's amazing how it doesn't take much for a lot of folks like us that are doing this. And I, I actually had an experience like this recently where I'm just, I spend so much time by myself with animals and plants and wooden objects. And 
um, it's it's really cool that when someone asks you to start talking about like what's in your head, how it just comes out naturally right. a lot of times right. for folks. So yeah, it was awesome chat. Lots of great info and uh, just I love the philosophy that Barn had to share and his journey is just so unique. I feel like you know he's a modern day uh, Renaissance man. I think for green woodworking for sure for lack of, for lack of better terminology. So thank you for listening this long. Mike, do you have anything to add? No, that was incredible. I mean, I just, yeah, it was it was an awesome ride just listening to his experience <laughs> and the lifestyle he has now and where he's been and where he's at now. It's just, it's awesome. And he, he got started so early on in life. I mean, I can't imagine what it would have been like for me at 12 or 13 <laughs> years old, you know, running an electric lathe in my, uh, my parents' garage. So like it's that's that's that was just really amazing, just listening to that and hearing his experience as a child and where he is now. I mean that's that's a lifetime, you know, of of experience yeah. and uh, and stories. So yeah, it was it was great having Barn on, and I hope we get to talk to him in the future as well. Good stuff. Well, um, to all our faithful listeners that stay till the end, if you uh, at this point, you know. We've mentioned this in the last episode. This is a value for value proposition that we're building. So if you get value from these interviews, if you could return that value at this time, you know, uh, we just would ask that you share the podcast. Um, if you use iTunes, you can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. It's, I don't know what other apps you can do that on. We need to see what other options there are for that. But spread the word. Um, and... In the future, we will, uh, I don't know, I guess at some point we'll, you know, at some point the value for value might be monetary, but at this point, just spreading the word and getting the word out there about the podcast because it's just growing organically. So as much help as we can get getting it out will be to the betterment of us being able to continue doing this and hopefully to the listener who enjoys these interviews that we are taking time to uh, curate. So without further ado, thank you for listening to this episode and we'll catch you next time. Later. Later.